Welcome to the AdDot podcast. Today I have Matt McClarty with me. He is the field CTO of MuleSoft. And so you can imagine we're going to talk about um, APIs and um, and also, you know, the kinds of, I guess, more the category of tooling that um, Matt has experience with and, and uh, also in helping clients and... Uh, how that crosses paths with DDD and other specific ways of um, implementing software architecture and so forth. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Yes, Vaughn. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us um, just a bit about what you do as a field CTO at uh, MuleSoft? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I. Uh, what's funny about the title, right? It's Chief technology officer is the, I guess, I guess field CTO is sort of an understood industry term now, but um, I would say these days, it's not so much working with companies on technology, right? I mean, not, not deep into the technology per se. Um, you know, I, I joined MuleSoft in 2019 with a focus on API strategy, which is really helping companies leverage APIs in any way for you know, how they could drive business value or drive more productivity in the organizations by adopting API first approaches. Um, but really, you know, very much kind of on the business side of things. And it's just that because that seems to be very central to what, uh, you know, what matters to companies now, I think everybody's a little more familiar with the, with the tech challenges around using APIs. The real challenges are around how do you do that and drive more business value. So I've just taken a more central role. Um, in, in helping organizations uh, digital digitally transform, or uh, you know, trying to trying to sort of move into the new ways of working. Um, so I'm I'm generally working with large organizations in all industries around the globe, um, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities in in the profile of of big organizations who are just trying to deal with all the complexity that complexity and opportunity that exists out there in the distributed software landscape. So uh, what is your background in, in APIs? I mean, my background goes back to the Windows API way back, you know, late <laughs> 80s, early 90s. And um, that was sort of the first era, I think, of when I um, thought about API. There was also the um, OS2 API, the SDK and, oh, yeah. and so forth. So, you know, um, that was kind of my introduction. I think it's kind of taken on a whole new meaning today, though. We're not talking about uh, libraries of stuff. No, completely. And in fact, when I talk to companies, I usually sort of start with, let's define what API means. Because, because yeah, you had there were APIs. I think the term originated probably in the 60s on the mainframe, right? And then I know my, my fir the first APIs I was writing to were on the Tandem platform, which is now like... Not, uh, non-stop platform uh, with really deep, deep uh, code. Uh, but I think now, in general, we talk about APIs. We're talking about web APIs, and you know, even those though have evolved, right? And I think when I, so I started my career writing, you know, payments type software for a big bank here in Canada, uh, but quickly got into this sort of integrated network-based communication, which at that time, mid '90s, was. Uh, you know, doing things like between bank 
transactions, visa net transactions. So still sort of integrating third parties. When, um, when the web came and then especially when web services were an early concept. So XML came out you know, 1999 and then SOAP started being popularized around 2002. I started getting into that for the same bank as we were looking for opportunities to drive new approaches for online banking, new service opportunities. And what was interesting there is, you know, the technology was very much uh, evolving out of the internet, web, or the web domain, and web services themselves were originally intended to be, hey, let's let's connect all these organizations. And you had, you know, stock trade, stock quote type examples were early on for SOAP APIs. But at that time, you know, what I would find out later was pretty representative of where a lot of organizations were. The big challenges were just even integrating internally. And so those those, uh, SOAP web services that were becoming popular were sort of hijacked and brought inside the organization. And so we were early adopters of service-oriented architecture and using SOAP services to connect internal systems. But then still, you know, the web stuff still went on. And I think around 2005 2006 were the big religious wars of soap versus rest and you know hey look at what you can do with if you use http based uh, protocol features to integrate makes things so much nicer than having to deal with the heavyweight soap protocol so you know ebay and and hey, salesforce and and others were pioneers of sort of restful APIs, and then that became a big deal. I think the explosion there really happened around the mobile, when mobile hit hit the scene, because then it was, okay, you know, we, we may think of the iPhone or, or mobile device as being the big deal, but it's actually all the services behind those apps that make them really valuable, which we all recognize if you ever lose network connectivity on your phone, right? <laughs> There's not a whole lot you can do. So, so you know, at that time, I, I was still... It had moved into the software vendor side, working for IBM, and was helping organizations with that internal integration challenge. But, but was also observing that, hey, all that stuff that was supposed to happen with web services was now happening with RESTful APIs, and was really powering mobile and then social and even more. And we started to see the early API product companies like Twilio and Stripe and so on. And so then I I, I joined another startup here in Vancouver and, and actually created a group called the API Academy where we we realized that there was all these companies who were trying to take advantage of these opportunities either inside or outside for connecting to third parties and and we uh, were just helping them with API strategy architecture design and then that's just continued to grow that was around 2012 and 10 years later we're, st- we're still seeing companies maturing taking more uh, opportunities so what's what's nice now is I think the ideas that were, you know, early on saying, hey, you could do this, you know, you're a big company, you could do this. Now we're starting to really see that take hold more commonly across these big, uh, big companies. So in that kind of, um, you know, you refer, refer to it as a war um, <laughs> mid, uh, you know, like 2005 mm-hmm. kind of uh, time frame. Do you think that that was one because developers finally chose or do you think that the overwhelming force of large companies in, in a certain direction and they were just hiring more people like what what is it that actually was the decider do you think yeah I think it was developers but I think it's especially developers in the role of API consumers 
right? And this is one of the, the big lessons that we've seen all along with, with APIs is people can obsess on the provider side and the, you know, the, the server side and think, you know, they get, they get stuck in the weeds there. But at the end of the day, like APIs are just tools that make developers' lives easier. They should be, right? I think there was a lot of stuff that happened in the, in the soap space where uh, there was, you know, big vendor consortiums and over standardization. It became a big mess, which lost sight of, you know, you actually have to have people use these things and understand how to use these things. And so there was certainly an organic element to the rise of RESTful APIs. And then I think what happened is just because there were so many places then to apply uh, this approach of, hey, well, we, you know, it was, well, we've got these social networks. How are we going to connect them to things? Oh, well, we can use these APIs to do that. Oh, we've got mobile phones. Like, what's a good way to get information from the server side? Oh, well, you know, if you just use HTTP and, and you know, create some resources and, 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 you know, take this RESTful interaction, it makes it simple. So because I think it was so easily understood by developers on the consumer side and, and there's a lot of easy tooling on the server side, uh, and I think it sort of coincided with the rise of uh, Ruby on Rails as well, like in that community where you saw the RESTful or at least the sort of, you know, there's that's a whole other debate on, on what's REST and what's not REST, right? Like like the, the, the pure definition of REST with hypermedia and so on versus the pragmatic, uh, hey, just HTTP and some resources. But but I think that just really popularized the spread. And then you had... And I, and I think that's actually now, what's funny now is here we are in 2022 and there's another set of protocol religious wars going on about, you'll see articles about people saying like GraphQL is the greatest thing ever. And um, I, 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 I ran across a company recently, I won't name them, who've, whose architecture team has decided that they need to divest of rest and move to graph, everything to GraphQL without, I, you know, my first question is, okay, let me see the business case for that. But but again, you know, I, I I think the ubiquity of RESTful, like just the how easily it's understood. Hey, you know, you need HTTP and you need some you know JSON to code the data. Away you go. I think has made it really powerful. I I wrote a piece on that for InfoQ a couple of years ago, saying like, as much as we'd like to focus on these, you know, get in the weeds of why this protocol for this specific use case is better than REST or whatever. I think you have to look at the the whole. Say well. You know, we would we have had the same ex- mobile explosion if people couldn't easily provide services from the back end? Probably not. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I'm not uh, highly opinionated on most of this, but um, I do know that REST or at least HTTP with resources, as you said, is is really the most popular way, um, definitely b- by far. Um, of developing APIs, um, we we were asked to implement a GraphQL server for our uh, Zoom platform, mm-hmm. uh, open source platform. And to me, I don't you know again have a strong opinion about it, but it seems to me like GraphQL is not REST, but it has a lot of REST type smells, right? I mean. You're you're uh, you're still submitting um, requests over HTTP. At least that's how yeah, we support yeah. it. I think. I mean, I think if you see, I'm not. I'm not even 
really denigrating GraphQL either. Like I think everything has its use. And I think what I get irritated with is when people say, well, REST sucks because of this particular thing. And you find out it actually has nothing to do with REST. It's just the way people have been implementing, like stereotypical implementation patterns. So they'll GraphQL community will be like, well, GraphQL is great because you can actually aggregate all these different resources behind your single API. And well, you you could actually do that with HTTP. <laughs> and like you don't, just because people have been maybe over, you know, overly adhering to this idea that you single resource, single endpoint type of thing. Well, you don't have to do it that way, right? And in fact, so so I think that people can easily conflate issues with a protocol with issues with how it's being used. And then then the risk there is you throw away the protocol and you move to a new pro- protocol, but bring all the bad practices with you. So so to your point, right, you can you can actually model APIs in GraphQL almost identically to to the way you might model RESTful APIs. But but I think the thing about GraphQL that maybe is a little unique is well, it's not even entirely unique because you can use query parameters on HTTP as well. But there's a lot of focus on empowering the developers to the consumers to say, you just pick the elements you want and away you go. But I think that brings a whole other set of risks as well around, okay, what's the performance profile? What's the what's the change management impact of just letting consumers do whatever they want on the interface? So yeah, it's a it's a it's a big topic, but I think you're I think the we I did a QCon uh, panel recently where it was it was set up to look make it look like we were going to have a big religious debate between myself kind of re- representing the rest camp and then you had uh, someone from Twitter on the GraphQL and and the, and someone from Google on gRPC, but you know it ended up being very friendly and concluding hey it depends <laughs> right it's like what what are you tra- what problem are you trying to solve. Yeah, interesting. And that's always the case, right? If if we're really being forthright about the um, different approaches, technologies, and so forth. What what would you... Interesting that you bring up the panel, including gRPC. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of um, tooling-type companies move toward gRPC for various reasons, but I don't know that I see a groundswell with... Um, clients actually offering gRPC-based APIs? What what do mm-hmm. you see? Yeah, gRPC, obviously it's got Google origins. Um, first of all, I have to say, like, I just, I, I do always giggle a little bit with gRPC because I talked about my days as a tandem programmer, uh, you know, very low-level stuff, almost somewhere between like C++ and assembler type coding. And the protocols that we would use there were very compressed and and use bitmapping and so on. So when I see gRPC and protobuf, like it's it just reminds me of these old compressed <laughs> compressed formats with uh, index numbers for fields and so on. I thought I like I'm like whoa, is this uh, ASN one all over again? But anyway, I mean I think it's a really community based thing. I think that gRPC is has an affinity with Kubernetes which is a pretty broad community of implementers. So anyone sort of in that CNCF ecosystem, Kubernetes ecosystem, will naturally be you know, aligned with gRPC and saying, okay, well, we need, you know, this is kind of the native uh, 
native protocol for a lot of what's going on in Kubernetes now, so we should implement that. In terms of the open API world, like it's still very restful. We're seeing a little bit of, of GraphQL, although I think GraphQL is still more of a sort of full stack developer world where you want to, it's, it's, it has more of an affinity with the React community, right? It came out of Facebook. And so, but I think gRPC for open APIs, I haven't really seen that yet other than really in the, with in a tight alignment with, uh, with Kubernetes. And, and what, you know, what we see is a lot of bridging, like, like we, so we have to sort of, in what we're doing um, with our customers is we're, we're bridging those worlds, right? Dealing with the React developers working on the, the the web UIs and dealing with the external APIs and RESTful APIs and then dealing with the underlying infrastructure on Kubernetes. So, I mean, I, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to articulate sort of throwing all the technology aside. What are some patterns for integration that are protocol agnostic? And we see the same patterns implemented in all those areas, right? You still have, you still have queries, you still have sort of state changing commands, and you still have events that are more asynchronous and post state change in nature. And there's ways of modeling in those in all the protocols. Yeah, <clears throat> let, let me broach a subject that is probably a little controversial, but well, maybe more than a little, but um, from, from my standpoint and a friendly way I'd like to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think API first really means? It seems like such a sacred term, like, you know, someone hears API first and they really, really have to do API first as if API drives everything. Yeah. Now, what what is the reality around API first? I think if I unpack API first, I think that the origins would be that there's a lot of really badly designed APIs out there. I think that's where it, that's where it starts, right? And so if you start to try and understand why are there so many badly designed APIs, it's just probably the common factor is people aren't really thinking about the developer experience, the consumer experience. So it's like the old, everyone's on one side of the boat, let's all run to the other side of the boat thing, where... I think API first is about, hey, you should really think about your consumer. Like the reason you have an API is because somebody has a problem they need to solve. So help them solve that problem. And then from there, the design process should flow back to how you actually implement it, as opposed to what was happening a lot and is still happening a lot, which is, oh, I have some data. Let me run this wizard and, and it will create an, you know, auto create some API for me. And you know, then thinking that that's enough. Well, it's probably not optimized for the consumer side. But I think you raise a good point, right? Is what, okay, what happens then if everyone becomes overly religious around API first? Well, it's probably slowing some stuff down. It's not necessarily the most practical thing. I think that, you know, just design and and, and building, we know that there's this feedback loops all over the place, right? So I think in reality, it's maybe it should be sort of don't forget about, about API design, don't forget about the consumers, but there's still always this iterative and, and cyclical design process. I think where, you know, anything where you have to do everything up front from a design perspective and then everything cascades down seems feels very waterfall-y, right? So, I, but I, 
But I think the main thing I would get out of API first is really like let's let's remember that that APIs have consumers and that that ultimately that's what's going to drive the value of the APIs. But the other thing I would say is on a more macro scale, um, I do think that uh, in the level of complexity in a typical organization software landscape is so high that you should though be really thinking about how you can not create more monolithic elements and that you know if we without getting specific on what protocol you might use for an api being able to have whatever business capabilities you know application functions in your environment in in a at a relatively granular level that people can call on you know in an api type way is clearly the right architectural approach these days so um so i think that that i think i would also take api first as being a good thing in in in, um promoting that type of architecture which is going to be more composable that's that's what i spend a lot of time on that yeah and i i think yes from the standpoint of APIs are very important. They need to be well-designed with the, you know, consumer experience, um, user experience in, in mind. Um, I think I, you know, I definitely agree with that. What um, concerns me is when people hear API first and they're, and they're already strongly into APIs, then they start to say, well, that what that means is that enterprise architecture gets to decide... <laughs> Um, what everybody in the company's you know services look like because mm-hmm. we're going to create these APIs in a vacuum. Um, yeah. Well, we have some conversations with them, but we're interpreting what they need, and then we uh, foist these you know the outcome you know whatever it happens to be like uh, open API you know spec like Swagger whatever um, specification, and then what they're going to do is model their domains after the APIs that we provide for them. And that is so short-sighted. And what I see is when that happens in a very large way, in the end, the, those who have that mindset will not be able to keep up with the, the amount of rejection that they're going to have as in this doesn't work, right? That you don't know what's going on inside. So you can, create these as enterprise architects tend to do in, in this sort of ivory tower, right? Mm-hmm. And then everybody else deals with it. And and what I've found in my own um, you know, experience in consulting is that they hand you know, they hand these specs over like for APIs and architecture and the solution architects just ignore it. Yeah. They just literally, you know, it becomes this sort of big, you know, money sink and um and then in in the end they're like we can't work with this it's not real you know so anyway what's your experience there totally agree well i mean it it just reminds me of the sort of the uh canonical data model uh euphoria of the mid 2000s as well right around that like this soa days of oh i know what we need you know our enterprise needs a canonical data model and everybody will have the same understanding and how did that work out right not very not very well in fact i would well and that's that's one of my <clears throat> it, it's funny because i guess the daylight 
hasn't like reached certain places, you know, mm-hmm. where they're still using the term SOA. And I guess from a, you know, sort of um, philosophical standpoint, even using microservices is kind of a service-oriented architecture, mm-hmm. but it's not what SOA was, right? Yeah. That's not what SOA was. But then, you know, and of course, whenever you talk SOA, canonical data model comes along with it. And I'm I'm just like, didn't anybody get the memo that that stuff disappeared like 15 years ago, or at least? This is the thing about our industry that could be, be frustrating but fascinating, right? Is that, is that there's just so much information. You don't know who's learned what lessons. And, and so as a, a, you know, as an acronym is a funny one to me because we probably lived through the same experience of SOA being so much promise and then being sort of hijacked by, by vendors and, you know, all the integration broker vendors saying, oh yeah, yeah, we have an ESB. And, you know, I, I wrote a whole, piece on that one for InfoWorld around how that story ran out. But what's interesting to me is if you go and talk to like people at Amazon or Netflix or Lyft or, you know, companies like that, who are the the microservice pioneers, they have no bones. Of, like they call it, yeah, service. Yeah, we have a service oriented architecture. It doesn't have any of the sort of same SOA as a four letter word connotations to it. Because I mean, it, it is. And even microservices, I, w- I would even say... The reason it was named microservices, I you know, I don't know this, but I would speculate it was we just got to get away from the SOA label. But let's take the let's take what were the intended best practices of of the origins of SOA and see if we can, you know, repackage it. Notwithstanding, there were some other elements of on the kind of implementation side. But so uh, yeah, I think all all these movements in our industry they always are are so. Uh, we know how it's going to go. They're going to get overloaded. They're going to get overhyped. People will miss the point, and you know. So, and, and that probably is happening a little bit with the API first. Um, certainly has happened with microservices. Um, I'm sure there will be. We're probably coming up pretty soon on when the next, the next rebranding of SOA happens, and it's called something, something else. But, uh, yeah, I I think that I, it. What I do in my role, like, is is I. When I'm working with companies, I do it's a it's a blind spot for me where I have to try and remember, like not everyone's had the same experience I've had and try and really understand when they say certain terms, what do you mean by that? You know, are you aware of this, you know, the, the pitfalls here, kind of go in with the beginner's mind. Um, you have to do that just because there's just so much information out there and people have different experiences. For sure. Um, so one thing that I learned in, uh, some conversation with you, I don't know, it's been maybe six, eight months ago now is that you were kind of the originator of the, um, was it called API canvas or web? It was, it was actually, there's a branding thing. It was a microservice design canvas. Yes. Okay. So it was, uh, and actually it's kind of a good follow on from the API first thing because, what you were just describing there, right, with enterprise architecture groups maybe getting a little over their skis on, uh, as opposed to giving guidance, sort of higher level guidance to the organization, let's go design some API specs and make everyone implement them, right? It was actually, and, and to what I was saying about this sort of uh, feedback loop 
uh, iterative design process people go through. A, a problem I saw was, okay, we microservice is one of the big ideas and one of the big ideas of SOA and APIs, API first and in the form I'm des describing it, is you want to decouple the work. You want to be able to decouple what the providers are building and what the consumers are building. And if you wait to get to the spec level where everything is super well-defined, you probably waste a lot of time because if I'm on the consumer side, I don't have to know exactly what the spec is going to look like in order to start building what I'm building, right? But I, it's, it would be nice to know what's going to be available to me down the road. So that was actually, um, I was doing a, an online course for O'Reilly on, on microservices in the enterprise. Like, how do you how do we take what we've learned from these kind of startup-y digital native world and apply it in an enterprise context? And that was when we got into the stage of, okay, if we, let's figure out what services you actually need, which was a lot of that was applying domain-driven design concept, concepts, context mapping, and so on. Once you know what you need to build, then let's let's describe it in a way that can get everyone get everyone going. And so that I thought you know, kind of had been embedded in a lot of lean canvas type stuff around that time. Thought, well, this is this would be a good format. If we just capture what first of all, what jobs to be done are you trying to support, and then turn that into what type of interactions you might need to support, and then just capture the most important pieces of you know. What what type of data is absolutely needed for that that's unique? What type of rules you might need? And then what dependencies you'll have? Then that will at least get people going on the consumer side and, and also be a good framing that you'll need for doing your uh, doing your development work on the actual service or the or the, the API that you're building. And uh, you know, I know um, it was actually it's something that I kind of did on that course and wrote a blog on it and um we had a colleague of mine who'd moved on to another company they were they were using it um james higginbotham and i you know talked a lot about it he took it and refined it i know it's in his in the book that he just published in your signature series there and chris richardson did a version of it kind of in the microservices world so it's definitely something i wish i'd followed through a little more deeply on but it's great to see it having legs in the community right and it's cool because you were early enough enough that you weren't just trending on it, right? It was, it, it was um, early in the canvas days, and <laughs> but shortly after that, like I recall, you know, it's like everyone has a canvas now, yeah. and uh, it's like, um, you know, diet soda. This is my diet soda canvas, <laughs> or something. Not, not, not that that's true, but it seems like that, right? It's like every uh, we don't have a canvas. We don't, you know, exist. Yeah, I was just so. on a call with the the uh, architecture group behind the built conference there. Yeah. And they're, they actually have a library of canvases. And I was, I was a little disappointed that my, that the, the service design canvas wasn't in there specifically, but it looked like there's some sort of uh ancestor or, or sort of uh, children or grandchildren of the, of the idea. But yeah, there's, there are a lot of canvases out there. Um, and I, and, and what's funny is uh, one of the things that I've been, I have a tendency to, to yeah ideate and then and then maybe maybe not follow through as much as I want to, but I am following through on one that I've discovered recently, which is business model canvas is great, and I think a lot of companies are using it, but it's 
I've started to do something as a in defining business models, which is something that you actually get into in this API world because companies are trying to figure out what API should we build, should we externalize them, and so on. Is this the 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 big thing I'm on now is this value exchange mapping or or value dynamics. See, I, I can't even get the name straight, but uh, which is all about kind of mapping out all the different stakeholders or constituents of a digital ecosystem and seeing what types of value they exchange. And I found this to be a really powerful way of coming up with visual business models that's very actionable. Whether you want to refine what you're doing or find new opportunities and gaps, it's a very visual thing, but that's more more to come on that later, I guess. Great. Sounds very interesting. Um, So, one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, I, as I recall, MuleSoft had its roots in, in ESB, right? I mean, it was the, that's what um, uh, was their first product. And of course, I <clears throat> I included that, <clears throat> pardon me, mostly because of um, influence from one of my reviewers and, and someone who contributed to my Red Book a little bit. Um, and uh, he was all jazzed on, you know, MuleSoft ESB. So he wanted me to include that. And I, I think if you read, um, the architecture chapter, chapter four, you'll find that. And I think that got some of the, um, early employees at MuleSoft really jazzed, you know, they were like, Oh wow. Vaughn likes MuleSoft. And actually I had never used it. I, I used other <laughs> messaging, but I, I included it. So anyway, I'm glad that, uh, wow, I guess I, I can't take credit for the huge success of MuleSoft, but maybe a little bit of credit in there. But um, where is MuleSoft these days in messaging, right? Is it is it just, is everything a REST API or do you still have like, not, not that it's an ESB, but some kind of messaging APIs too? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because my my experience with original experience with MuleSoft was when it was Mule Source, and I was at at IBM, you know, and the big big incumbent. You know, hey, IBM had like five ESBs, ESP technologies, right? Um, and it was like, well, who's this little upstart uh, open source company? Um, so MuleSoft's evolved a lot, and I think that what sets MuleSoft apart and one of the things is yeah there's that heritage is all there like if like we still have lots of companies who struggle to crack the crack open their SAP implementations and and have them play nice with the rest of the systems in their organization and the reality of the way enterprise software goes like um you actually, you actually can't even retire or migrate anything unless you've actually appropriately encapsulated it anyway, right? The sort of strangler pattern. But you know, MuleSoft was, and I, you know, I don't take credit for this because I only joined in 2019. But MuleSoft was very smart in staying ahead of the market and in, in the right direction. So I think in 2013, around then, uh, having grown substantially as an as an, a developer-friendly ESP platform, because there's a lot of not very developer-friendly ESP platforms, um, recognized that you know APIs, this is the way companies were going to want to integrate. And that there's a lot more value in, instead of just wiring point A to point B, um, trying to um, encapsulate and 
modularize the architecture so that you would have these API-based business capabilities. That would be a much more um, scalable way of, of growing and, and transforming, and they've, they've been proven right. Um, but I think now, you know, I've been acquired by Salesforce in 2018. We've done so much work with companies around helping them become more composable through these API, this API-led approach to integration that now good news is we're at the point where, okay, once you have a whole bunch of composable things, what do you do next? So we're getting more into those next steps, whether that's automating and, and providing. We just we acquired a, an RPA company last year called Service Trace to help um, you know, provide more immediate automation capabilities. Um, there's, we just launched a, a bunch of work around what we call universal API management, where now we can plug into other people's API gateways, not just MuleSoft. And, and, I, and I think that is sort of one of the big missing things, I think, in a lot of organizations is just visibility. Like, what do I have? Or, or at least seeing what I have in my software landscape in a way that actually articulates it so I know what I have. And so that's a big, I think, probably an undersold part of the value proposition of what we try and do, which is just help you see what you already have and help you see it in a way that you can actually use it in all these different contexts. So, so there's a lot of a, a lot of evolution that, that keeps happening, and uh, it's pretty exciting. So, how would I um, how would I publish um, domain events to other microservices through? Um, um, a messaging mechanism. What is the MuleSoft answer to that these days? Yeah, well, MuleSoft has its own sort of asynchronous protocol on any point MQ. But I mean, we have tons of customers who are implementing Kafka or uh, you know Rabbit MQ, whatever whatever messaging protocol. So we're we're definitely taking the universal approach of whatever you have, we'll plug it into plug into it, and then we can surface those um, those events. You know, its capabilities in our exchange, which is the kind of the catalog of all the things that you've got in your organization. Most of which would be APIs, but I still see sort of event interactions as a form of API. Uh, so really, you know, however, um, however you'd be modeling it, um, it would show up in this catalog. And if you're a developer in the organization and you're like, oh, I need to get notified when there's new customer onboarding or something like that. I wanted, oh, I can subscribe to that event over here. Um, you know, we've we've launched some support for async API spec, which is, uh, uh, Fran Mendez started that spec, uh, which is, I think, really useful in terms of rounding out all the more event uh, or sort of a, pro a protocol agnostic way of saying, look, you've got events in your organization. We can model them through async API the way you might through... Uh, open API spec. Um, so yeah, that's it's part of, we could sort of consider events to be just like APIs as part of the way that your systems are communicating. Yeah, good. So, um, well, one, I guess talking about events or domain events in this case um, kind of leads to domain-driven design. I know that you've had um, some uh, DDD has influenced your work, mm -hmm. and I just wonder how that fits into your day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month or something like that. Yeah, I think I think there's a real, um, well, there's sort of a, a 
uh, a longevity to the concepts of DDT that make it very different from the other trends we see in the industry, right? Because it's really focused on the problem space, mostly, right? And I think that, um, so I would say most companies that I'm working with or most architectures or architects I'm working with, they're very much, they recognize that. And so I'd say the way it comes up day to day most is we, when we're working with companies, a lot of what we're doing is saying, okay, let's, let's try and be specific and then generalize from there. And so we have a workshop where we would go into an organization and say, like, give us like three to five different initiatives or, or use cases or something where you can say, you know, maybe we're working on this project now. Maybe we were envisioning this project in the future and just give us what the customer experience is and what the underlying data and systems would be involved in that. And let's just walk through how you would actually model the integration architecture for that. Like what APIs would you need? And the real, so that's kind of the north-south is you've got the user experience up here and, and, and the data and systems at the bottom. But the east-west is, is really the domains where the domains come in. And so we really try and get people to understand, you know, use, use context mapping to have them understand that why it's important to figure out what, what the domains are involved in that interaction, because over time, that's how you're going to, you're going to come up with the most effectively reusable and scalable services and components that will, will help you the next time you have an initiative. And when you actually plot multiple initiatives, especially on different timescales, it helps them to see that because then you can sequence it and say, well, okay, in this domain, if you build these services uh, first, then you're going to actually pave the road for the ones coming down the road. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of domain models or industry domain models out there now, which are a big, I think, a, a big risk area, in my opinion, where companies will like in banking might see the buy-in. Uh, uh, model and say, well, we're just going to adopt that and internalize it, which is dangerous, right? Because that was not developed from your business. And so even taking those sort of uh, templates that are out there in the industry, you still need to go through good domain modeling if you're going to make it work for your organization. So we're doing that. And and the other thing I'd say is um, I've been working a lot with Salesforce. Buellsoft is part of Salesforce. And Salesforce has a whole group of uh, field architects, enterprise architects, and they've actually developed a really comprehensive set of uh, capabilities. They call it capabilities, but really, it's you know, it's it's their own sort of domain model which covers a full spectrum of of industries, and so that's been a useful gauge as well. But I think people are recognizing that that you know you have to think about what you have to forget about what application is delivering functionality, and you really do need a more domain specific view of your organization. And, and going back to what I was saying about the visibility problem, that's the way I think we articulate it for companies is to say, you know, we're going to articulate what your systems do in terms of domains and capabilities within those domains. That's the right view that is sorts things out on the IT side, but also puts it in terms business people understand. So it comes up a lot. Yeah, and um, as long as it's recognized that capabilities are the what mm. and processes the how, right? That, um, that, okay, we have a, you know, whatever, um, treasury management, um, deposits, whatever, 
you know, capabilities, how are we going to design those actually, right? So um, I think that Beyond is, um, or Bion, I'm not sure how people, you know, I mean, it can give you a lot of um, ideas about capabilities you should consider having in a bank. But um, actually, I've, I've looked quite a bit at uh, their models, and I have to say, I, I don't get much out of them. You know, they're, they're I mean, in terms of capabilities, yes, but um, from a sort of API perspective, I guess, there's, I don't know that I would agree that these are the ways that, you know, a certain bank should do things. Yeah. So may, maybe that's what you were driving at. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a few there's a few issues there. Um, I I just try and when I when I encounter it in the wild, I I say you know it's a it's an input, right? You can you know people have put a lot of thought into how you would decompose banking into these process areas and capability areas, but um, it's not a shortcut. It's not something that you're just going to drop in the organization and all of a sudden you're composable like it's that doesn't work that way well and there's no code there no. actually i mean there's a lot of contract yeah there, but yeah, and, and i um, think i don't even yeah. think there's like specific api specs or anything like that which which is probably a good thing yeah right like I, I, if, it, yeah. if there were you could just see people just like oh yeah we're gonna put it in there in the hopes of interoperability yeah. But, yeah. i don't want to be misunderstood it's a laudable <laughs> effort it's amazing really that they came up with this i just I have had experience with um, clients just saying like, well, let's just do this, you know, let's use yeah. the beyond. Um, you run into the same thing I do. Models and You run that? into the same thing I do, right? Yeah. Yeah. But this yeah, good, that's exactly. the silver bullet. So, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. So, okay. Well, <laughs> um, so in, in the whole digital transformation um I would say has become almost an industry in itself, you know, which is, I guess, your focus mm -hmm. now. What are the, what are the biggest problems that you think um, companies are running into? What are, what are the reasons that they're failing at transformation? I mean, I, I think it's that uh, there's a few areas. Like I, there was a study, I can't remember, is it IDC study? Someone, someone did the numbers and said like, we spent a trillion dollars on digital transformation, and nine hundred million of it didn't didn't work out. Right? But something like that. I'm, I'm sure I got the numbers wrong. Uh, I think it's like, first of all, digital transformation isn't really an end game anyway. Like, like that's not. You have to really articulate first of all what what does that mean for your company? Because I see some companies and be like, we're we're doing digital transformation. Oh, okay. What what does that mean? We're we're putting everything in containers. Like, I mean, that's not, that's not a business out. Right. We're, yeah. We're, 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 we're um, lifting and shifting to <laughs> exactly, the cloud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah ex right. exactly. So I think there's a problem with just figuring out what the right outcomes are to aim for. But I think there's some structural stuff. Like I think that um, companies are, I think we're still living in, we're, we're in this digital era, but we're still following the paradigm of, the 20th century manufacturing economy. So um, I've mentioned the, the word composable a lot. This is really where when I'm talking to companies about digital transformation, I'm like, this is a structural change. 
And so you need to follow these patterns. If you if you look at the companies that grew up in the digital in the web era, like like Amazon, right? They follow this more composable approach of saying small small product teams supported by platform teams building these API enabled capabilities used in multiple contexts. So you know, which is which is kind of what we've been architecturally promoting all along. But I think for a company to take full advantage, that needs to go right to that organizational level. So I think that what happens is companies will do sort of paper over with. Well, we did a we did a prototype of a of a project where we have a really good digital experience, but they're they're just papering over the structure that they already have. So I think it's it's hard, but to trying to get into the guts and change the guts, but that doesn't mean you blow everything up and start from scratch either. So, you know, I try and work with companies and give them a more iterative approach to make the structural changes one step at a time. And I think a lot of that does come down to breaking apart, understanding your business domains, understanding what where your real core capabilities are, that um, the value mapping thing I was talking about before, understand what you're doing better than everyone else and and making sure that you're, you're leveraging that as much as possible. Also understanding what you don't need to build yourself and divesting of that and using, there's so many you know, best of breed capabilities out there that are behind APIs. So there's a lot of changes that have to happen, but I'd say fundamentally it's that companies aren't recognizing the, the structural differences in the digital paradigm versus the, the old paradigm. And then even if they do, being able to to get there one step at a time, so it's it's hard work though, but uh, but I've seen some companies now that are doing a, doing it and doing it effectively, and that's pretty exciting. Right, I think too there there are opportunities in potential core domains, speaking domain driven design um, parlance, but um, which don't exist today, mm-hmm. right? The, the, and um, just since we're talking about banks, I mean, banks thinking in terms of, well, um, deposits is a core domain because it's so important to the bank. Well, that's true, but is that actually where um, innovation is coming mm-hmm. from? I, I'm not saying that it can't, but in other words, um, are there are there ways that the bank can make money in in new areas that are supported by deposits, for example, um, whatever you know, part of the bank that's considered, um, and should those be the areas of transformation? Um, you know, just an idea. Yeah. Those, you know, are there ways we can automate um, where we never did before? Completely, and I think. Yeah, banking banking is a tough one because they just make so much money in the banking industry that you know it's hard to motivate them to really <laughs> challenge themselves. But there's lots of innovation happening in the financial space. I think that, bank, but I think bank. Well, here. Well, I I just wanted to say here's a here's a really, you know, big problem for finance. You know, banks financial services, and that is um, having fifty to a hundred million lines of code and on mainframes yeah right i mean maybe even more i don't know yeah oh yeah easily so. i think um 
you know, and that, that's that's a different problem to the sort of innovation problem, but it's definitely gets in the way or can get in the way. But I think banking is an interesting one from that value exchange perspective, because what what is it about bank? Like what value are the banks providing? We know what value they're capturing, but I think a lot of it is trust. Like a lot of the reason why people stick with their banks is because they've just, whether they are happy with them or not, they trust them with the money. And so, you know, how much are banks leveraging that, that, uh, that value proposition of being trusted. There's a lot of ways they could take it. And that's and that's also something that we, you know, I, I work with companies on, we have these workshops where we try and be practical, you know, sort of pragmatic innovation where we break down what are you doing today and then look for three types of opportunities. Unbundle, reach, extend, which is what can you carve out of what you're doing today to come up with a new opportunity? Who can you reach with what you're doing today and, and new audiences and then how do you extend extend the uh, experience or the or the process to or optimize the process to make it better? And that actually that framework has been really useful. It seems it seems pretty obvious, but especially the unbundle one, you come up with some really interesting ones. Like oh, well, actually, you know, like the banks. Like oh, we're really in our adjudication process. We're doing sort of our own credit scoring. Like well, maybe you can become a credit bureau. Like there's there's lots of Lots of places you can go. So, Well, it's been very interesting. If you were to provide one sort of encapsulating um, recommendations or, you know, direction that, that would help um, companies and by and large, how, what would that be? I, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe, again, it may be obvious, but it's really keep, always ask why. Right. There's so much, I've seen so many organizations who get down the chain of, you know, we need to do this because of this and then well, we need to do this because of that. And and they sort of lose sight of what the purpose was of, of what they're doing. Like I, I, I was picking on the, we're going to containerize everything thing, like whatever, especially if you're at the depths of IT and you're working on, uh, you know, big infrastructure initiatives, always challenge and ask you know why are we doing this is this the right thing to do what what is the business outcome here because it's pretty easy to there's so much complexity we're dealing with it's pretty easy to go astray and if you can't trace back what you're doing to how it's going to help the business then maybe you shouldn't be working on that there's actually um a group our our engineering group here have have done a whole effort of doing that tracing of saying Here's what we're aiming for. Here's our North Star. And then showing all the, you know, for everyone in the engineering organization can see what they're working on, how it traces back to the North Star. And that's actually a motivator too. So it's it can be energizing to really think about what you're doing. So that would be it. Always ask why. Good. So um, thank you for taking time to meet with us. Any sort of parting thoughts? Um, uh beyond the um, asking why that you'd like to say how, how should people reach you if they want to learn about your your new effort of um trying to show the, the oh, value yeah. Yeah. chain feel of, free to yeah. find me on linkedin or twitter matt mcclarty bc um i'm actually presenting at uh api days conference later today interface conference so i'm i'm out there uh yeah always love to hear from people and and you know, I like I like to give ideas to people who will follow through as well. So <laughs> look forward to talking. Yeah.
If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.